Hey, good morning. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 19. While you're opening there, I want to give you a greeting from the distant past. Now, where you're sitting today, where you're watching this video, it's most likely Sunday, April the 5th. But where I'm sitting today, it is Thursday, March the 19th. Uh, I'm here in the sanctuary with my friend Will, and he's been so gracious to give us his talent and his equipment uh, to help record these and to edit uh, these sermon videos. And uh, from our vantage point today, mid-March, uh, our concern was we don't know what's going to come. We don't know what the next few weeks have in store. We felt like we need to get uh, some sermons recorded and, uh, and under our belt just in case. We don't know what's going to happen. We just wanted to be prepared. Uh, and so if it seems like there's, if there's something happening that I should be addressing now, uh, it's not going to happen in the video because I can't tell the future. We'll talk about it by email or something else. But just know that we're doing this because we care for you. We love you. Uh, we want to make sure that the word gets into your home and that we have this shared worship experience together. And so thanks for being a great church. You, as always, you're incredible encouragers, great cheerleaders. Uh, just, I'm so proud to be your pastor, and I'm glad that we get to dive into John chapter 19 today. Palm Sunday, but today uh, we are with Jesus at the cross. Uh, there is a fountain uh, in a little town called Shawnee, Oklahoma. That fountain is on the campus of the college where my wife and I met and went to school, met and dated and got engaged and all this. When, when I see that fountain, you, when you would see it, you would just be like, hmm, old fountain. When I see that fountain, a thousand stories erupt in my brain about it. It's really sacred space for us. I, I was standing there the first time I decided I'm going to ask this girl on a date. And it was at that same fountain a few years later where I got on one knee and asked her to marry me. Uh, so it's important when I see that thing, all these stories come to mind and, and it just fills my heart with joy, of course. Now the cross needs to be something like that for us. The cross is, is not just ornament. It, it's not just wooden fixture it is a it is a, an, a, a hundred stories it's it's multiple pictures of the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and all that he's done for us and the way John tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus he gives us snapshots that fill our minds and our hearts he gives us pictures that help us make sense of what we're seeing and that's what I want to show you today in John chapter 19 I want to show you three pictures of Jesus on the cross. And with these pictures in mind, they call us to trust and they fill our hearts with love and joy in the Lord. And so I want you to read John chapter 19. It's a long passage. And so like last week, I want you to hit the pause button and I want you to read this on your own right there where you are. Uh, and then when you finish, just click play and I'll catch back up with you again. But our passage is John 19 verses 17 through 42. Go ahead and read it now. Three pictures of the cross, or at the cross, these pictures that John gives us to fill our minds. And uh, the first picture that John gives us is that the cross is Christ's victory 
when we look at the cross and we see Jesus there, one of the things that ought to come to our mind is this is victory. Now, do you think about victory when you see Jesus on the cross? Probably not. Uh, I mean, when we've watched adaptations of the crucifixion on film, does it feel like victory when Jesus dies? No, it doesn't. It feels like defeat. Uh, the victory in the film comes on Easter Sunday. But look, that's not what John saw. John doesn't speak about Christ's death as anything other than victorious success. And he does it in a couple of ways. First of all, he emphasizes in the story that Jesus is the victorious king. So in verses 19 to 22, if Jesus is the king, he's not a victim. We talked about this just uh, last week, right? The kingship of Jesus is on full display in his interaction with Pilate. Uh, and uh, Jesus tells Pilate that he's a king, but his kingdom's not of the world. Jesus is mocked by the soldiers that beat him. He's put, given a mock robe, a mock crown, and it's just a, a horrible scene. And here again at the cross, his kingship is front and center. Now, Pilate has made a sign and placed it above the head of Jesus. See, the sign says, King of the Jews. But I don't think Pilate did this to mock Jesus. Rather, the way John tells the story, it seems that Pilate is actually provoking the Jewish mob that's there. They've denied over and over again, this is not our king. He, he doesn't belong to us. Uh, but Pilate puts that title, King of the Jews, on the placard above Jesus' head on the cross. And here's the thing about that title, King of the Jews, it's true. And not only is he King of the Jews, he's the King of all nations, he's the King of all people. Pilate has this phrase written in three different languages so that everyone who passed by could understand it. And that's the message from the cross to the world, here is your victorious King. And nothing's going to change it. Nothing's going to stop the kingship of Christ. He's the king of creation, the ruler over salvation. And the cross doesn't challenge his reign or interrupt it, but rather this is where he is enthroned and his glory is seen in full. This is his great victory. So John shows us that Jesus is a victorious king, but he also shows us that Jesus is a victorious conqueror. There's a really important uh, Old Testament reference in this story. Uh, John tells us that the soldiers divided Jesus' clothing between the four of them. Uh, one of his garments would have been this long, seamless shawl, uh, and it was a, a valuable piece of clothing, and not just because it was Jesus, but because it would have been anyone's. And so John tells us that whenever they gambled to split up his clothing, that this fulfilled a prophecy in scripture and then he quotes from Psalm 22:18. Did you see that in your passage? Here's what he says. In verse 24, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Now as a good Bible student, here's what you're going to do. You're not content just to let this reference slide, but you're going to go to Psalm 22 and read it to try and understand just what's going on here. It's John's not just dropping some random quote from the middle of the Old Testament. There's a message, a context that comes with that line from Psalm 22. So what is Psalm 22 about? Let me read a few verses to you. Uh, the speaker in Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. So what is Psalm 22 about? Well, when the gospel writers read this, when they read Psalm 22, what they saw uh, was King David giving words to the suffering of his descendant, the one greater than David, the eternal king, the Messiah. And so you and I might say, well, this is clearly a psalm of suffering, but it's not simply a psalm of suffering. Yes, there is suffering in it, but there's so much more than that. Look at verse 19 or listen to verse 19. The speaker says, but you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Psalm 22 goes back and forth between descriptions of suffering and statements of trust in God. So even though it opens with this feeling of being forsaken, that's not how it ends. If you were to look at verses 22 through 28 or listen, it sounds something like this. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Does that sound like the language of suffering? No, it, it sounds like the language of victory. It's the language of praise. So when John tells us, the soldiers divided his clothes. He's not quoting from a psalm of lament or a psalm of defeat. He's quoting from a psalm of victory. So when we read John 19, this is the part where Jesus is nailed to the cross where we break down in tears and we wish it had gone different. But far from it. This is the part where you and I are supposed to raise our hands in praise to God, to honor God and revere him, to shout hallelujahs, to sing, may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord because of Christ's victory on the cross. Now, it's our way uh, to interpret our pain and grief as God being against us. But remember what he did for his afflicted one in Psalm 22, he heard him, he lifted him, and if Jesus, the afflicted one, at last knew God's smile, can't we expect to see the same in our distress? The answer is yes. The soldiers get Jesus undergarments, but Jesus gets the glory of heaven and earth. And why is that? Because God did not despise him. God did not detest him. And you can take that text into the pit with you. Our God is so good, and we are rescued by our victorious King and conqueror, Jesus Christ. So there's our first picture. The cross is a picture of victory, but the cross is also a, a picture of our salvation. Uh, so Jesus knew that the end of his life was near as he hangs on the cross. But John shows us that Jesus is still in complete command of everything around him 
Uh, he says he's thirsty. He's given something nasty to drink. Um, and then Jesus says, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Uh, I want you to think of the movies and the artwork you've seen that depict the crucifixion. Um, the movie I think that all of us might think about is Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And, and when I think about that, I think of the utter brutality of this scene in particular. And all of our depictions of the cross show such gore at this point. Uh, I, I even remember in the past, I've sat through sermons where um, pastors gave very vivid details about the gore, the mutilation, all that Jesus suffered on the cross in his horrible death. But the gospel writers don't describe the cross in that kind of detail. John is just very matter-of-fact about it. Verse 18 simply says, there they crucified him. That's all he gives us. And Matthew and Mark and Luke are much the same. They're not uh, into the gory detail of the scene. And why is that? Well, I think it's because John's focus is not primarily on what Jesus suffered, but his focus is on what Jesus accomplished. Now, there's no doubt that what Jesus suffered was awful and brutal and grotesque. All of that is true, and we should understand and know those things. But John, an eyewitness to this event, he didn't give us every awful detail. Rather, he continually points us to the success of the cross, to what was accomplished in his death. The cross is where he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the cross is where God the Father unleashed in full his righteous wrath on sin. The cross is where God the Son absorbed in full the Father's wrath on sin. The cross is where God's justice is satisfied. It's where your salvation is accomplished. So when Jesus says, it is finished, these are not words of defeat. They are words of accomplishment. See, Christ's death doesn't just make salvation available. It makes it concrete. Christ's death did more than create the possibility of eternal life, but it brought life to all who come to him by faith. Those whom God has called are saved in this moment when Christ says it is finished. The cross is where our salvation is accomplished by Jesus. He's given us a picture of victory picture of our salvation, this accomplishment. There's one more picture that John gives us. The cross is our life. Jesus dies, and then he's taken off the cross by two men, Joseph of Arimathea and another man named Nicodemus. Now, this is the first time we've heard of Joseph of Arimathea in John's gospel. The other gospel writers also speak about him. Uh, we know that he's a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. He's very wealthy, very influential, uh, and he's also a secret disciple of Jesus. This, this is the second time we've heard of Nicodemus. We first met Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus at night. He sneaks out at night so he can ask Jesus questions. How can a man be born again? If he's already been born once, how can he be born a second time? Nicodemus is the one to whom Jesus speaks the famous words of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was also a secret disciple of Jesus. 
They make a request for the body of Jesus. They prepare his body with spices that Nicodemus bought. They buried him in a tomb that belonged to Joseph. They are secret disciples no more. Now listen, there is, there's no allowance for secret disciples of the crucified Christ. Here's the caveat. We know that in different parts of the world, Christians need to be secret about their allegiance to Christ for the sake of their safety or for the sake of the gospel. That's not the kind of secret I'm talking about, though. When I say secret, what I really mean is indistinguishable, that we would be the kind of people who would claim identity with Christ yet be indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Nothing about the way we live or speak or act bears witness to our identity of, with Jesus Christ. And so the cross teaches us how it is to live our lives bearing his name and his identity. You see, people of the cross can't live indistinguishable from the masses. We're marked by the cross. And so the cross models for husbands how to love our wives. Also from the cross, we learn how wives are to love their husbands. The cross teaches us how to love our enemies. It teaches us how to forgive. It teaches us how to show mercy. The cross teaches us how to put the needs of others before ourselves. The cross teaches us a song to sing in praise to God. The cross teaches us the story to tell to the whole world the good news of Jesus Christ. The cross is the model for how we face suffering and hardship in our own life. The cross is how you and I face our hardest days with the unbreakable hope of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and who is coming again. The cross is not something for you and I to lament, but for you and I to embrace as followers of Jesus. The great Christian theologian and World War II martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is famous for this quote. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So it is for us. The cross is our life. It's where our salvation is won, and it's where our steps are ordered, and we follow in the example of Jesus. So John has given us three pictures to think about at the cross. The cross is a picture of Christ's victory. It's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of our life. And why does he do this? Why does John give us these pictures for us to think about? Do you remember what the main theme of the Gospel of John is? What is his goal? His stated goal in his own handwriting in verse 35 is this. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. Today, you've witnessed what John witnessed. You've heard what John heard. Now, will you believe like John believed?